Good morning, good morning, Rabotai. Welcome to Breakfast and the Class. Breakfast and the Class is dedicated in celebration of the birth of our new daughter, Avia Malka Miller, sponsored by avid listeners Georgia and Matthew Miller from Chicago, Illinois. Fantastic, the windy city, we love it. Breakfast in the class dedicated in memory of Leilu Nishmat, the Lubavitcher Rebbe, Menachem Endel Shniasen, Alava Shalom, sponsored anonymously. Breakfast in the class is dedicated as well, oh, the FBI caught me. Breakfast in the class is dedicated in loving memory of Martin Dweck, Alava Shalom, Leilu Nishmat, Moshe Ben Behie, Alava Shalom, sponsored by his family. <coughs> A deluxe breakfast in the class had been sponsored as well by Nathan S. Batesh and Sonny Nakin, dedicated in celebration of the birth of a baby girl to Sharon and Isidore Batesh. Mazal Tov and Mabruk, uh, as well in loving memory of Sami Saidu and Ishmat Shalom sponsored by his son Isaac Syed, and as well, Breakfast in the Class dedicated for a successful month of Tammuz for all of Am Yisrael, a month of health, sh- success, shalom, and prosperity, a month where we each come closer to Hashem, a month of Besorot Tovot, where everyone in need of Yeshua receives their salvation, a month where we witness our ultimate Geulah, sponsored anonymously. After a sponsorship like that, I don't even need to give a, give a class. Amazing. <laughs> That's brilliant. Dedicated loving memory leader Nishmat Miriam Bat Shamsi Vechaim, sponsored by the Zara family, Azaku Baruch, and as well sponsored by Isidore Badesh, dedicated in honor of his wife Sharon, in celebration of the birth of their daughter Joyce, Mazaltov, and Mabruk. My friends, our parasha begins by telling us about the quintessential chok, the chok that gave birth, Ya'ani, to all the other chokhs. What is the, uh, the mother of all chokhs? To quote Saddam, who's saying, What is it? The mother of all chokhs is, Speak to the Jewish people, Let them take for you a para aduma. What is this chok? What is this? Why is this chok such a chok that Shilomo HaMelech says, I said to myself, I would be wise. I would understand all of the Torah, and yet she is far from my understanding. What is so difficult to understand about this uh, mitzvah that it is called the chok to end all chokhs? So much so that our rabbis say, chuka hakakti, a chok did I make, gizera gazarti, a decree did I decree, ve'en lecha reshut, and you have no permission to think after it. That's what our rabbis tell us. What is so difficult to understand about para aduma? I have to tell you, there's a lot of other mitzvot that are as puzzling to me as this is. Can I give you an example? Egla arufa, good one. Guy dies, you don't know who killed him, in between two cities, right? The bed din comes out, they measure whichever city is close to. The bed din comes out, they take a egla, they take a calf, arafto, they, uh, they chop off the head, and they say over this uh, beheaded animal, Yadenu lo our hands did not spill this blood. It's not our fault. Kaper, forgive the Jewish people. What, what is that? Menen lewen. You, you understood that one? We have all sorts of interesting laws about how to deal with the misora. That's not a chok. Guy has a mole on his arm. You have to lock him up for a week. If it spreads, another week. 
We don't say if a guy gets a malignant tumor, it's not a tumor. If a guy gets a tumor, we don't say to the guy, lock him up for a week. Only if it's this kind of look, with that kind of hair, amok mina, or if the, if the view is deeper, not deep. What is so perplexing about this mitzvah that it becomes the daddy of all chokhs? But not only is the daddy and the mom of all chokhs, not only, it goes so far as God says, you are not allowed en shoot Now I need to point out what is important, because I see my dear friend over here who's joined us from Israel. Under, he's mouthing the words along with me. All chokhs that we find, all chukim that we have in the Torah, are mitzvot that you do not have access. You don't understand the reason behind it. So the definition of a chok is something that you do not understand. But by paraduma, it almost seems like it's a mitzvah that you're not allowed to understand. En rishut Where do we find that expression? By any other chok. By every other mitzvah that we don't understand, we just don't understand it. It doesn't say that we're not allowed to understand it. Or we're not allowed to try and figure out what it's there for. What is so unique about this mitzvah? My friends, I'd like to share two points, two angles that will help us understand this idea. Let's start with the first, as one normally does. The first is the context uh, of the mitzvah. And what I mean by that is that the mitzvot that God gave us in the desert, in Egypt, as important as the mitzvah itself was for Am Yisrael's future, it was also important to understand what they were going through, the backdrop against which that mitzvah was being given. So let's say as an example, we talk about Kiddush HaChodesh, the sanctification of the new moon. God could have given the mitzvah of Kiddush HaChodesh at any point in the Jewish people's sojourning in the desert, correct? He could have given it to Avraham Avinu if he wanted, like Brit Milah, but he didn't. He gave Brit Milah to Avraham, and he gave Kiddush Chodesh to whom? To the Jews in Egypt. Why? Like we say in the Biracha, that the Jewish people, She'afem, that also them, Atidim l'hitchadesh kimota, are destined to be refreshed and to be renewed like the moon. So the message of sanctifying a new moon of having a new beginning, of starting again, of doing Teshubah, of becoming again a full light as opposed to a sliver of their actual selves, that mitzvah had to be given to the Jews in the time when they were the most downtrodden, when they were beaten up, when they were abused, when they were low. So the mitzvah would indicate to them from that dismal place in their lives that there's always a chance for rebuilding and rebirth. The context of a mitzvah, Rabotai, is sometimes as important as the mitzvah itself in helping us understand what the mitzvah is supposed to communicate to us, both intellectually and also spiritually, in its innate spiritual power, even without us understanding. We come to the mitzvah of hukat, of para aduma, and it's important to understand the backdrop against which it has been given. 
So I'd like to share what that is in just one second. Because the first answer is about context, but we haven't explained it yet. The second answer is about essence. Most of our commentators explain that it's not the mitzvah which is difficult to understand about para aduma. It's not the fact that it seems to be a random mitzvah, that you take a red heifer. What's the difference if it's red or black or white? Who cares? All of a sudden, we're racist when it comes to para aduma. There's a superior color. What's going on? Can't be any black hairs. Don't tell that to BLM. Right? That's, what, that's the point here. The point here is that it's about the color of the cow. All that is perplexing. But that's no more perplexing than any other mitzvah that we don't have the reason for. What makes this, according to most opinions, a chok that we don't understand, is one part of the process. That there's a avi avota tumah. The highest form of tumah is what? Interaction or contact with someone who's passed from this world, a dead body. That tumah cannot be rectified. The only way to become pure from someone who is tamemet, you can't go to the mikveh for that. Even if you dip 613 times. Even if you go 613 times in the Ariz mikveh. Doesn't help. The only way to become pure from tumat met is what? Para'aduma. They would sprinkle from para'aduma. They would take the blood, prepare the whole thing, take the ashes, mix it. Mix it with Mayim Haim El Keli. Take this whole thing and then they would spray it on this person. And then after that, he could go to the mikveh and after a period of time, he would become tahor. Which is why there's not a single person alive today that is not tameh met. Because they themselves were walking around all the time. We don't know where bodies are buried. At the time in Israel, they used to have a siman for every place where there was a dead body. Even if they buried someone on the side of the road, a met mitzvah, which you're not allowed to transport, okay? Even if they buried them on the side of the road, they would make a siman. Someone was buried here. They put up a sign. They would make a marker for the grave so that people could know, not just koanim. Today, only koanim think of being tamer tahor. But then, Yisrael also needed to know if he was Tamet Tahor. Why? Whether he was allowed to eat Korbanot, whether he was allowed to go to the Beit HaMikdash, other things as well. If that's the case, Rabotai, so we come to this scenario where a person is Tameh, the Kohen who is Tahor, takes from this purifying agent, the, uh, the product of the Paraduma, sprinkles it on the person who is now Tameh, who is now impure, and the person who was impure becomes pure. But paradoxically, the sprayer of that water becomes impure. That makes no sense. It's not just that there's a mitzvah that we don't understand. That is part of the higher realms. That there's something here that just logically, that just um, from a place even of our understanding of Tum'an Tahara, how could something that makes somebody pure make the person who deals that purity? How could it make them impure? But more than that, Rabotai, it's not just a question of mathematics. You know? You know, they say two negatives make a positive. Do two positives make a negative? No. There was a wise guy in a class where the teacher said, 
Two positives don't make a negative. And the kid in the back goes, yeah, yeah. Okay? Two positives don't make a negative. You can't become negative from too much positive. If a person goes out of his way to make another Jew tahor, how could it be? How could there be such a reality that for the sake of bringing tahara to someone, that that makes the person who brings tahara to another, that it makes them impure. It's not just that it makes no sense in, uh, in the matters of, uh, of logic, of, of intellectual acuity. It doesn't make sense spiritually. And that's why this mitzvah is the daddy of all the chukim. My friends, the Lubavitcher Rebbe, whose uh, yard site was uh, last night and today, I believe, right? Gimel Tammuz. There's a, uh, an ocean of people right now at the Ohel, nonstop for the duration of his, uh, of his yard site. He was someone who spoke frequently about this reality. That you see that the Kohen Amitaher, it is his job in order to sanctify others to allow himself to become impure. It is the job of a Shaliach of Chabad to move to Mumbai, to move to all the dark corners of the earth to be able to bring back another Jew. To learn this message and this missive from Borei Olam himself where God says, Hashochen itam betoch tumatam that God lives with the Jewish people even in their tumah, even in their impurity. We who are supposed to learn and be inspired by God's light also learn to go to places of tumah to raise people up from the darkest corridors of this world's existence. My friends, the reason why this is a chok and the second reason is because it's something we can't get our heads around. Not that we don't understand why, but that it doesn't make sense. You want to tell me that there's an agla arufa and that brings kapara? Okay, I don't understand that. How does that work? That is a lack of understanding. Here, it is counterintuitive as opposed to a lack of intuitive, a lack of intuition. But my friends, the second part of this chok is its specific placement. I take you back to the beginning of Parashat Shelach. Where in Shelach, we begin the parasha with a question. Why is the parasha of the Miraglim close to the parasha of Miriam? The parasha before Shelach ends off with the words, with the story of Miriam speaking Lashon Ara, begins the next parasha talking about the spies, says uh, Rashi, Lama nismecha, how come these parashot were connected? Because the Miraglim should have learned the lesson. You see what happens when you speak Lashon Ara. Rishaim alalu, and these wicked people did not learn lo musar, they did not take any instruction from the devastation that befell Miriam for speaking Lashon Ara. So too, so too we will ask this question. Why is the parasha of Chukat following the story of Parashat Korach? Why is it now that we are, get, we are asking this question? My friends, if we review, if we rewind just a little bit, we go back to the story of Korach. And Korach's rebellion was built, right, my friends, on three specific things. The motivations we know. Korach wanted to become the Nasi of Shevet Levi. He wanted to be a Kohen. He wanted to be the Kohen Gadol. 
the 250 of the Sanhedrin, they wanted the Kehunah to revert from Kohanim, from Leviim, back to the Bechorot. Tatan Aviram had an axe to grind with Moshe Rabbeinu since the beginning of time. We know the motivations, but what was, what was the power that drove the rebellion? Our rabbis tell us there were three things. All of them were questions. The first question was that Korach said to Moshe Rabbeinu, a talit that is full of techelet, all blue, does it need to have a blue string? A house that is full of sifre, of sifre Torah, does it need to have a mezuzah? Why? If one string of wool could take away the obligation from a whole baguette of wool, how much more if all of the strings are blue? You definitely don't need that one string then. You have many. Kalvachomer. It's only logical. You have a house full of books. It has, in all those sifarim, it has the one little parasha that's inside the first chapter of Shema that's inside the mezuzah, right? So if the mezuzah, one parasha, is poter the house, surely all of the parashiot are more than enough to pre-poter the house. What's Korach really asking? If all the people, kulam kedoshim, are all holy, why do we need a leader? Moshe, your job is outdated. It's unnecessary. We're all holy. But the Midrash tells us one other thing that Korach brought. Korach brought a story. He said to the people, and you could just imagine him, on his uh, milk crate, standing up there, stumping from city to city, from town hall to town hall. My friends, you ever notice how anyone who's trying to be president or trying to be a mayor suddenly uses the word folks? Let me tell you, folks. Ever notice that? You never heard a word come out of his mouth before in his life. All of a sudden, had as a potato farmer, okay? Why are they trying to make themselves relatable? The guy went to Harvard. If he ever wrote the word folks in his PhD, they'd throw him out on his head, okay? But all of a sudden now, he's your everyday man. When was the last time had that changed the tire? Okay? Never happened. So listen up, folks. Let me tell you a story, he says, about a, a poor woman. A poor woman who uh, was, uh, lost her husband. She was a widow. <clears throat> He's driving up the sympathy. And this woman, she has a field. And, uh, you know, she can't feed her family. And uh, she's starving, very hungry. She's one of my neighbors, you know, she says. One of my neighbors, she can't feed her family. And she finally brings the crops in after the whole cold, long winter. And Moshe tells her, you know, you got to give, uh, you gotta give uh, a portion of that. You got to give to my brother. You got to give me also, to the Levi. You also got to give, you got to give that away. You got to, finally, after she can't, she sees, you know what, she bakes one little loaf of bread. Moshe Rabbeinu comes, he says, you got to give chala to the Kohen. She can't live, she has no food. Everything Moshe is taking from her. So what does she do? She decides, you know what, I can't deal with this. There's too much tax on real estate. So she sells her field and she buys a sheep. She figures she'll live off the wool of the sheep. She'll live off, uh, you know, whatever it produces. But she takes off the wool. Moshe Rabbeinu comes. Reshita gets. You got to give some of the wool to Aharon. She says, you know what? This also you're going to tax. Forget it. I don't want this either. 
she decides to, to slaughter, to eat the meat for her and her family. He's, no problem. Moshe comes, he says, you got to give Zeroah, Lechayayim, Keva, got to give to the Kohen. Until, until um, Korach says, this woman, this woman, this poor widow and her children died of starvation. Is this what you want in a leader? And the rabbis point out, ridiculous. There was no one who starved to death in the desert because they all ate man. Also, she bought a field in the desert. Which field did she buy? They left every three days. They went, they moved to another place. And, and she grew crops. In the desert, she grew crops. The whole story doesn't make any sense from the beginning to the end. And Moshe Rabbeinu, the only thing he had to do with three million people is come find this one widower. Said, Leket, Shikha, Also, Leket, Shikha, is Moshe Rabbeinu taking it for the Kohanim? He's taking it for the poor. The whole story doesn't make sense from the beginning to the end. But what Korach was doing, the power of what Korach did, was he used cynical questions to be able to be me'orer, to awaken doubt in the heart of his listeners. That rebellion cost Am Yisrael many, many people, many, many leaders. In the plague, another 14,000 people died. It causes tremendous damage. And yet, my friends, and yet, Borea Olam understood that the message had not yet been received because the aftermath of the story of Korach is the Jews complaining, which results in the plague. The aftermath of the plague is they come and they say, Kulanu metim. They didn't learn the lesson. They're just too afraid right now to open up their mouth. Borea Olam offers the panacea. He offers the answer for those that live in doubt. He says, let me explain to you. Let's, let's say it clear, let's say it loud, let's make it plain. You cannot understand me. One more time. You cannot understand me. Today we live in a world where people would like you to believe that there is something called rationalist Judaism. My friends, that has not, will not, cannot ever exist. They pretend to hide behind Harambam. Harambam believed in rationalist Judaism. Lies. There might be some things that Rambam says aren't as you understand it, they were more natural, or they were this, or they were that. But the idea that Judaism could be something that was only rational and not supra-rational is literally mufrach me'elav. It is uh, undone by itself. The very fact that there are chukim, that God could tell us that you cannot understand, that makes Judaism irrational. Except that one of the things that the proponents of rationalist Judaism do not get is that it is rational for Judaism to be irrational. And let me explain what this means. 
There are things that must operate according to a system. And that is the rationale of that system. What makes sense about the system is that the system should make sense. But I want you to imagine something which is completely random. So as an example, I shuffle cards without seeing them repeatedly. Is there any possible way that after shuffling the cards repeatedly, I pull out a card and that you could come up with an algorithm or some sort of theory that would decide 100% what that card would be. That is impossible. That means that it is rational in this moment that this thing should be irrational. That there should be something that it is impossible to be able to determine because this is above human intellect, correct? There are things that will be above human intellect. And by God, you know what is one of them? God is one of them. Irrational does not mean does not make sense. Irrational means does not make sense to me. So if someone was tracking the cards that he was shuffling by placing a camera underneath his hands, that was a high-speed camera that could literally follow the card that he was shuffling from hand to hand, eventually pull up at the front. Could that camera tell you what the card would be? Absolutely. It would be irrational to believe that the camera that saw the card he pulled before he turned it over could not tell you what that card would be. That would be irrational. That means it's not that it is unknowable. It is unknowable to a person who's looking at the back of said card. My friends, Bore Olam's wisdom to us, it is so beyond our comprehension that it is impossible for us to understand. It is something that is illogical, that is irrational. Not because it doesn't make sense, but because it doesn't make sense to people who by definition are not being given the entire picture. You know what the response to Korach is? To people who lose their faith over questions, it is to understand that questions do not and apikores make. Questions don't make you an atheist. Good questions don't make you an atheist. Hard questions, emotional questions, intellectual questions don't make you an atheist. Much in the same way that if I do not understand something in science, I don't decide that it's magic. I don't yet understand everything there is to know, along with all of science, about black holes. Do we decide then that because I have a question that there is no explanation for dark matter? for quarks, for quantum mechanics. We don't decide that. We just know that it's a question I have and I don't yet understand it. Even though it operates in exactly the opposite way to everything we know about science, we understand that it is something that we do not yet know, but that one day will become revealed to us. Korach and the power of Letzanut, the power of questions, to make us turn from our faith is combated by para aduma, which is why it teaches us that even someone 
who is in the ultimate state of the lack of spirituality of purity, someone who's come into contact with the worst form of Tumah, that person can be rendered pure again by this complex nature, the nature of a Tahor person becoming Tameh, seemingly irrationally. And accepting that is the ultimate form of Tahara. When you can't pray right because you have questions, because you feel slighted by God, abandoned by God, when you feel disconnected, when you feel not as pure as you could be, when I have many different questions I don't understand, and I'm angry, and I'm wondering, and I'm in pain, you know what the answer is? The answer is, I could be a person of faith and also have many questions. And you know what? Those answers, there are answers. I just don't have them yet. That is the reason why Parashat Chukat, this unknowable thing, follows the story of Korach. Because it is the answer to every question that doesn't have an answer. That there is a wisdom that is higher than ours. My friends, what a comforting thought in difficult times when we can't understand why things are happening to us. To recognize that I don't have to understand everything. And that even when I can't see a plan, I'm just looking at the back of a card, but in a short amount of time, that card will flip and I'll understand exactly how that gets my blackjack to 21, how that gives me a full house or a royal flush. Bezat Hashem, we should be zocheh, rabotai, to maintain our faith through the most difficult questions that life has to throw at us. Baruch Adonai Le'olam. Amen,